Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, writer, music critic, and cultural promoter Gerardo Kleinberg discusses Aida when Verdi almost said goodbye. This recording was made as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. See Aida at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from May 21st through June 12th, 2022. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. I'm really happy about the title I chose for this brief talk. Aida, the day that Verdi almost said goodbye. As I've always said when I try to speak about composers, they are genius, of course. They are incredible people who do amazing things or who did amazing things, but they are people like us. Things happen to them, emotions, problems, domestic problems, the sense of getting old, the sense of not being with your times. And all these things happened also to Verdi. So I know there are going to be several talks about Aida. I don't want to go very technical. I would like to tell you what was going on Verdi's mind when he was writing this opera. I'm going to try to get into his thoughts, his feelings, his problems, and try to portray him as that, as a man. First of all, let's say that when Verdi is writing Aida, about 1870, he's not only the best Italian composer, he is the most renowned Italian. But more than that, he is Italy. And I'm not exaggerating, this is not a metaphor. Giuseppe Verdi is Italy for everyone there. Why? Because opera is a national Italian product. People in Italy grew listening to opera, attending to opera, singing opera, but more than that, they felt that opera belonged to them, they belonged to opera, and opera was a gift from Italy to the world, which in fact it is. But more than that, opera played an amazing role in what we call, or historians call, Italy's reunification. Italy had had an incredible historic past during what they call the Roman Empire. Then everything was dismantled, unfortunately for them. And during all Verdi's childhood and early life, what we now call Italy didn't exist. Italy was a mixture of small, not provinces, but territories almost owned by the French through the Bourbons, by the German through the Habsburg, who had kings, dukes, etc. in all those territories. But Italy didn't feel comfortable like that. Italy wanted to be Italy again. So a large, I wouldn't say revolution, but a large fight against all these external powers developed. And in order to make a war like this, you need to have banners, you need to have hymns, you need to have things 
that make you feel everyone's together in the same boat with the same purpose. And there were two very important artistic things which helped this sort of revolution, this war, this unification, this birth of Italy as a nation, as we now know it. One of them has to do with literature. There was a very important Italian writer called Alessandro Manzoni, who played a major role. Why? Because now we know Italy, they speak Italian, no problem. Everyone goes to Italy and speaks Italian from Sicily to Milan, from Rome to Naples, no problem. But things were not exactly like that during the 19th century. Why? Because there were very strong dialects. Most people in Sicily spoke Sicilian, in Naples, Napolitan, in Venice, Venetian, etc. And it was not that easy for them to understand each other. Literature and Manzoni's literature written in Toscan, the language spoken in Tuscany, which is now what we really know as Italian, became very popular. And in all the schools in Italy, Manzoni's books were read, were taught to children, and somehow they developed a sense of identity in their tongue, in their language, through Manzoni. But Verdi did something even more spectacular. Verdi's operas became so popular around all Italy, and they were sung, of course, in Italian, that that made the Italian people feel close to each other. During Verdi's initial output as an opera composer, he wrote many operas which had incredible amounts of chorus, operas which dealt with revolutions, with people who were fighting against oppressive powers from abroad. He even mentioned things about Italy, Italian Republic, being together, Italian liberty. And little by little, all Italians started to feel that Verdi was talking to them, that he was addressing them, that it didn't have to do with Jews against Babylonians in Nabucco, that it didn't have to do with Attila and ancient Italian history, but that he was somehow talking to them. And they felt so incredibly in touch with his operas that they became an absolute phenomenon, so big that the Austrian and French authorities, which dominated the country, were not that happy with Verdi's operas. Censorship played a major role in making it difficult for Verdi, even if he was the most renowned, famous, and best Italian composer, to premiere his operas, because they started to realize they were dangerous. They were dangerous because Italians were getting together against them, mainly through Verdi's operas. So Verdi became a national symbol. Verdi became their hero, their light, their guide. So much that people in Italy started to use Verdi's name as a political slogan, if we could call it that way, because Italy was finally going to be reunited around a king, an Italian king, from the family of Savoia, who was Vittorio Emanuele, 
Victor Manuel, Vittorio Emanuel. He was going to be king of Italy, Re d'Italia. So people started to fill all the streets in Italy, painting graffitis, which said, Viva Verdi, Viva Verdi, Viva Verdi. It was a safe thing. I mean, he was an artist. He was an opera composer. No problem. But they did not mean Verdi. What they were really meaning was an acronym for Verdi meant Vittorio, V, Emmanuel, E, Re, King, R, from the, the Italy. Verdi, Vittorio, Emmanuel, Re, d'Italia. That was what they were really meaning. So just imagine, just give it a thought, an artist who becomes the symbol, the political slogan to build your nation. That's, that's really something, guys. I mean, that has never been attained, as, in as much as I know, by any other artist of any other art elsewhere, ever. So that was one thing. Verdi developed an incredible personal style. When I talk about Verdi, I always make this sort of amusing commentary. Verdi was not born in Italy because Italy did not exist. Verdi was born in Rossini. If we could call Rossini a country, a culture, a way to see, write, sing, and listen to opera. Rossini, before Verdi, had been the absolute king of opera worldwide. He developed a style which is called bel canto. We always have to be careful not to use bel canto as a synonym to every kind of opera. Bel canto really means just Italian opera from the beginning of the 19th century until 1850. That's really bel canto, and that's Rossini. All this florid style with a lot of agility, with fireworks in the voice, we call coloratura. All this style was developed, established by Rossini, this huge crescendi when the orchestra, the singers, start to build up momentum, strength, energy, velocity, volume, and then you get a huge climax. He's, he also developed what we called uh, zen, uh, Shena ed Aria, these arias, which were not anymore just small things sung by the prima donna or the primo uomo to say how much I love you, how I feel, but which were somehow inserted within the action. That's why they were called Shena ed Aria. There, were, there had more dramatic action in it than before singers started to sing with each other during the Baroque period. Duets, tercets, uh, quartets, vocal quartets were not that frequent. Rossini incorporated them again to the repertoire and that's where Verdi was born. So he was very fond of big chorus because the chorus meant people together, Italians together. If we remember what I just told you about this sort of uh, nationalistic operas, chorus played a major role. Italians sang in the theater, in the streets, in the markets, in their houses, this Italian chorus, this Verdian chorus, which spoke about freedom, about being a nation again. So that was, grosso modo, Verdi's style. And he, little by little, developed it further and further and further. 
with one main aim, which is called, at least in Spanish, I will attempt a translation. Let's see if it's uh, understandable. What he called, what we call continuidad dramática, dramatic continuity. What does that mean? It's very easy to understand. Opera is theater. Opera comes from the theater. Opera was invented, was developed in order to try to imitate what Renaissance artists thought had been the old Greek theater. And they thought it was like spoken song. What youngsters today would say, they thought that the theater was rap, you know, like semi-song, semi-spoken. So little by little, opera got too musical. Music arrived in a very powerful way to opera, and it started to lose its theatrical identity, its theatrical essence. When we go to an opera play, action flows all the time, all the time. We see people talking, people discussing what's going on. I mean, nonstop. When we go to the theater, in most operas, there are moments where things get a little bit stuck. You know, we're having some action and then suddenly the soprano stops all the action and she sings five, seven, 10 minutes, beautiful singing, amazing singing. We all clap, we're excited, high notes, that's opera. But that's not exactly opera. And sometimes it happens too much. So Verdi realized he needed to give back to his operas more action, more continuity, to have them have more fluency in their action. So he was not going to make arias disappear. Come on, arias and singers sing, sell tickets. He knew that. He knew that everyone was expecting that. He knew singers were expecting to sing their arias and that the audience were paying their ticket to have these arias. But he wanted to make arias, duets, all these spectacular numbers, vocal numbers, somehow melt within the flow, within the action. That's what I mean by dramatic continuity. So that was his same. And he started to build, to construct that kind of opera little by little. There's a huge difference between Wagner and Verdi, who were born the same year, 1813, both born on the same year. People tend to think there can be anything more opposite than Verdi and Wagner. And that's not exactly true, because they were both, among many other things, looking for trying to reach this dramatic continuity. Verdi, in a very radical, revolutionary, merciless way, if we want to call it that way, merciless with his audience. Wagner didn't, was not worried about his audience. If they could follow him, great. If not, no problem, not my fault. You have to work, you have to struggle. And when you do it, and when you succeed in doing it, it's an amazing triumph for the spectator. It's one of the most moving things to be able to follow, to conquer as a spectator, a Wagnerian opera. Verdi behaved in a very different way. Verdi was Italian. You know, when they asked Verdi, Maestro, wouldn't you have, wouldn't have liked, you wouldn't have liked to write Chastan und Isolde? And you know what Verdi answered? 
me, Tristan Undisolde, with this weather, that meant a lot. I mean, he was Italian. He was Italian. He didn't want to provoke his audience. He didn't want to lose his audience. He loved to be loved. He liked to be liked. He wanted to his music to be wanted. There's no thing wrong about that. So all the way towards dramatic continuity, Verdi never led you alone. He was always holding your hand, taking you with him without even, even noticing he was transforming opera and he was little by little transforming his spectators. So we arrived to this miraculous moment between 1851 and 1853, when Verdi wrote his miraculous trilogy, Trovatore, Traviata, uh, Rigoletto. And there, mostly with Rigoletto, he made a huge bet, a huge step towards dramatic continuity. With Traviata, he sort of said bye-bye to the bel canto, to that way of singing. And then he went to all this last part of his career where he was more experimental every time. And we arrived to 1860s where Verdi writes and has a lot of trouble premiering and uh, achieving a definite version of his Don Carlo. So we have now some sort of portrait who Verdi was musically in that moment when he's going to attempt or when he's going to start writing Aida. Who was Verdi as a man? Verdi had finally restored a personal relationship with a woman. Verdi had and experienced one of the worst, if not the worst personal tragedy an opera composer has ever faced. When he was very young, just starting as a composer, he lost his wife and his two very small kids with three different infections in two years. He lost his whole family in two years. So it took him decades to reestablish a relationship, this time with a woman called Giuseppina Streponi, who had been an incredible singer, a very modern woman, a very polemic woman, who had had children out of marriage, not, not being married, a very modern woman for Italy in those days. And Verdi was in love with her, and they were finally an established couple, although the double morals of Italy in those days rejected and said, how come Maestro Verdi, our incredible idol, is having a relationship with that woman, blah, blah, blah. Verdi suffered for that, but he was a very strong man, both him and it's funny, he was Giuseppe and his wife was Giuseppina, the feminine of uh, Giuseppe. They faced all these aggressions, if we might call them that way, from the Italian society, and they finally married. So Verdi was now a married man. He was now not thinking anymore about huge historical frescoes in his operas, about revolutions, about uh, public affairs. He was now much more involved with domestic affairs, with family themes, family characters, family conflicts. That's why he left those kind of operas and moved to operas like Luisa Miller, like Traviata, like Rigoletto, which have to do with family problems, people, 
almost ordinary people having problems. He had become also an incredibly wealthy man. And by incredibly wealthy, I mean incredibly wealthy. I mean, Verdi died in 1901 and he left many, many million dollars. 1901 million dollars. That's a lot of money. That's an incredible amount of money. He was a landlord. He owned incredible extensions of, of land. He developed agriculture, farming, cattle. He, he had a huge estate called Santa Agata. And he lived there. And he was happy there. And he was very involved with the workers. And he developed uh, new techniques. Uh, he, he bought new techniques for farming. He was involved in the working rights and the unions of, of the peasants. He had a very an incredible, socially involved, committed mind. He was an incredible philanthropist. He gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to help poor people, to help people who had uh, been victims of floods and earthquakes and things like that. So why are we calling this Aida the day Verdi almost said goodbye? Because there was something else. He was getting tired. He was getting tired of having problems with the censors, with the singers, with the impresarios, the normal problems every single opera composer had and has. Working in an opera house, as people who are now connected to the to this uh, Zoom know, is a very difficult job. Too many people, too many interests, too many profiles, too many egos, too many things. So Vedi was getting a little bit tired about that. He was getting, he didn't like to be a celebrity. He hated being a celebrity. He was completely secluded, secluded, isolated in his huge Santa Agata farm. And he didn't want, it was every, every time it was more difficult for him to go out and go to the theater, to the production of his operas. He was started not to have a good time doing that. He loved his wife. He had lost his father. He had lost his second father who had been his father-in-law, for the, the, his first father-in-law. So he was a little bit depressed. He was in his late 50s, almost 60, early 60s. But there was something else. There was a new artistic movement in Italy called La Scapigliatura. Scapigliati means that they are not, they are not well-shaven, that their hair is all like that. Scapigliatura, scapigliati is disheveled. Just imagine these guys, young guys, disheveled, modern, looking cosmopolite people who were a little bit tired of seeing that Italy was considered sort of a backyard culturally of Europe that only had this now too traditional opera. They were very Wagnerian, they knew languages, they loved new art, and of course, they thought Verdi was old-fashioned, was not anymore that interesting. And they were very hard on him. Among these people from the Scapigliatura were poets, composers, playwrights, painters, etc. Among them was a very young, incredibly talented writer and opera composer called Arrigo Boito, who had said nasty things also about Verdi. So Verdi said, I am a little bit fed up. 
I really think it might be enough. I don't need money. I don't need fame. I know I don't need any recognition from anyone. What am I struggling for? Why am I doing this? They were saying now, because Verdi was developing some traits in his style, which had a little bit to do with the Wagnerian evolution, but he was arriving to those ideas and to those elements in his style by himself. And they were saying, ah, now Verdi, the old man, he's imitating, he's even imitating Wagner. And Verdi said, I mean, decades developing my style to be called now a Wagner, a Wagner imitator, come on. So all these things might let you feel what Verdi as a man, as a composer was feeling in those days. There was another thing which is very important. I think I'm sure about it. Verdi was a little bit afraid to go further with the development or the complexity of his style. He could have done it easily. He was an incredible musician. He wrote beautifully for the orchestra, amazingly for the voices. He could do whatever he wanted. Had he wanted to become a Wagnerian, he could have done it in five seconds. But something stopped him to go further. And I think that it has to do with the joke I told you that when he said, writing Tristan is older with this weather, Verdi was Italian. He felt Italian. He loved singing. He loved the human voice. He, he loved those melodies. And he thought that if he went further with that, he might destroy the Italian character of his work. And I think that's a personal opinion that also stopped him. He could have developed even a stronger, bolder, larger orchestra, but that would have meant serious trouble for the voices, as it did with the Wagnerian repertoire. He could have very easily destroyed the voices, as at the very beginning, Wagner opera were destroying voices, as people said at the beginning, and sometimes today, Wagner didn't write for the voice, he write against the voice. It said, that's not accurate, but many people say that. Verdi always wanted to wrote for the voice, and he knew how to do it. He could put the voices into struggles, he could write very extremely difficult roles, but always knowing what was possible and what was not. He had developed a new kind of vocalidad, vocality, vocal writing, as we say. He had developed new tesituras, the Verdian soprano, the Verdian tenor, the Verdian baritone, new ways to sing, new ways to write for the voice. Some people in his time consider it too aggressive for the voice. Come on, too aggressive. Wagner was destroying voices two blocks away. So it was not that aggressive, but it was different, completely different from the bel canto style. So Verdi, again, was being accused of being too traditional, old, old fashioned, conservative in his art. 
plus he didn't got, want to go any further with his style because, because for the reasons I've just told you. Plus he was tired, fed up of working in the theater. Plus he was very rich and he kept receiving and receiving money from his royalties every day, every single day for the performances of his operas all around the world. Plus he was at ease having a good time finally with Giuseppina Streponi in this beautiful farm. There was no motivation. Verdi liked money. He loved money. He did. That's good. So now let's come to 1871 and let's see what happened then. The Viceroy in Egypt, in Cairo, the position was called the Khedive. His name was Ismail Pasha. Ismail Pasha was a man who worked as viceroy in Cairo, in Egypt. And he was an opera freak. He loved opera. He loved Italian opera. And he wanted to make a huge opera house in El Cairo. So he wanted to explore the possibility of having Verdi write an opera for El Cairo. For many, many, many years, people thought, now we know it's not, uh, that's not right, that the Khedive had asked Verdi to write an opera for the inauguration of the Suez Canal. That's not true. He explored the possibility of Verdi writing an ode, a hymn, for that occasion. Of course, Verdi said, a hymn for the Suez Canal? You're crazy, forget it. So Ismail Pasha, the Khedive, gathered all the money to make a huge opera, a new opera house in El Cairo. And then he thought, okay, now I have a good reason, asking Verdi to write an opera for this new opera house. So there were many people involved so that he could make an official offer to Verdi. First of all, th th there are three people involved in AIDA you should know about. One of them is Ismail Pasha, the Khedive. He had like a, like if you could say, like a minister of cultural affairs called Auguste Mariette. Auguste Mariette was an incredible Egyptologist, very renowned almost as renowned as Champollion, the guy who deciphered the hieroglyphs, very important man, who knew everything about Egypt. He had made incredible discoveries, archaeological discoveries. He knew everything about how they spoke, how they wrote, how, which clothes they wore, their tombs, their customs, their architecture, everything. And there's another very important guy called Camille Dulocle, Camille Dulocle was a French guy also who lived in Paris. He was a very important opera impresario. He also wrote, he also was a writer, and he was the artistic and general director of the Opera Comique at Le Châtelet, one of the three huge opera houses in Paris. You know, there were the, the Théâtre des Italiens, the Opera Comique, and the Palais Garnier, and the Grand Opera. First of all, the Khedive wanted an opera from Verdi, but he wanted an Egyptian opera, logically. So Auguste Mariette developed the first idea. Supposedly, there are some facts, historical facts, very remote facts, about a certain 
history between Egyptians and Ethiopians, as told in Aida. Auguste Mariette was a very good friend of Camille Duclos. He sent Duclos the first ideas about a scenario, about the, the storyboard, what's it about? Not the libretto, not the whole thing, just the idea, the characters, the conflict, etc. Coming from Mariette, historical credentials were guaranteed. I mean, it was first-rate uh, historian. So Dulocle received the first draft of the scenario, and he went a little bit further because Mariette didn't know about opera. So Dulocle, who was an opera expert, gave it a more operatic form. And then it was Dulocle who, addressed, who wrote Verdi, they had known a lot because Verdi had been a lot in Paris because Giuseppina Streponi had lived for a while in Paris giving opera, giving voice lessons, singing lessons because Verdi had premiered his Don Carlos in Paris because he had done the Sicilian Vespers in, in French in original in Paris because he was for very long periods of time living in, in Paris. So they approached Verdi and they told him about the offer. He said immediately, no, but they started to persuade him little by little. Money made a difference, of course, lots of money. But Verdi really gave up and said yes when he read the story. He loved it. It was perfect for him. It had this part of grand opera, all these triumphal scenes, all these huge scenes, but Aida is mainly an intimate opera. It might be misleading because one tends to think that Aida is the summit of grand, huge, spectacular opera. Let's be careful. If we take out the triumphal scene, what do we have? A very intimate story with some characters having a love triangle, the struggle between fidelity to your father, with fidelity to your lover, with fidelity to your values. With it, It's things that happen all the time. Aida, Radames, Amneris, Amonasro, they're real people. They are not myths. They are not cardboard characters. They have their flesh and blood and... You can feel them. You can somehow relate to them. I know we are not uh, Ethiopian prisoners, but we sometimes have felt a little bit like that. We are not Egyptian uh, generals, but somehow we have felt that kind of responsibility. We all have felt sometimes from time to time heroes in what we do or victims or prisoners. That's why Aida works so well. So to make the story short, Verdi accepts the commission, accepts the conditions, accepts the scenario, and then he incorporates, he hires his, one of his writers. This time it's Antonio Gislanzoni, an Italian who's an expert in drafting, in writing the opera libretto, as we the real, the actual words which are going to be sung. He knew Verdi, and they, Verdi was very famous for torturing all the time his liberties. It was like when he invented that sport, made life miserable for his 
libertist. Why? Was he a sadist? Was he cruel? Was he a mean guy? No, it is because he was trying to do a new kind of opera. He was transforming opera with things like what he called fare svelto. He all the time said fare svelto, make it slim, make it slim, take away, cut, cut, erase, away, away. He knew that opera had to be much more condensed, much more powerful, and that opera too many times had too many words, had too many notes, and he was against that. So Ghislanzoni wrote the libretto, and finally Verdi finished his opera. But the ordeal was starting. Why? Because the Kedive wanted a huge, beautiful performance with incredible sets and costumes, which were supervised by Mariette, who was an expert in that. And they said, we have to have the production built in Paris, of course. And at the Opera Comique, they were building the sets for it and the costumes, but small problem. Prussia and France started a terrible war. So Paris was besieged. So it was very difficult, thanks Andrea. It was very difficult for the production to leave from Paris to Egypt. So there was a, an incredible delay in the premiere. The theater was ready, so they had to premiere with another opera. Which opera did they choose? Rigoletto. It had to be a Verde. So uh, good news for Verdi. I'm sure he also got some money from that Rigoletto. So he got money from the revival of Rigoletto at the Cairo Theater, and he also got his premiere of Aida. But he was not at all involved with the idea of going to the premiere of what they were going to do, because it was really a social act. It was a performance for socialité, for it was like a jet set premiere, and Verdi hated that. So he never showed up to the premiere. The conductor he had appointed did not get there. He didn't accept the job. So Verdi never considered the Cairo premiere as a real premiere. Verdi considered the premiere of, the, of his opera, the premiere which took place one and a half years later, I think, at La Scala in Milan with a conductor he wanted to have and with a soprano he had written the role of Aida for, Teresa Stoltz. Teresa Stoltz was the only problem Verdi and Giuseppina had in their entire life. It got ugly. Verdi denied Almost all the time he had had any affair with Teresa Stotz, but it seems very likely he did have one. You know, at the end, Giuseppina Streponi, Giuseppe Verdi, and Teresa Stotz became incredible friends. And they spent huge seasons together. They hosted uh, Teresa Stotz. So was she Verdi's lover? I'm not sure, but it's a strange story because they, at the end, the three of them and Teresa and Giuseppina became really good friends. But it's interesting. It's interesting because Aida has to do with jealousy, because Aida has to do with a triangle, a love triangle, and because Verdi was really experiencing that while he was writing the opera. Not the first time, not the first time a composer is leaving what he's writing. I can give you many examples. One, Mozart's opera, Abduction of the Serrario. Well, when he was writing in Furan and Serai, he was actually 
kidnapping a Constance, exactly as Belmonte is kidnapping his Constance from the Pasha. So things like that happen. I've been always sure that when a composer started to be able to choose the story, the libretto he wanted to set into an opera, that choice, that election, must always be one of the first steps to understand what he's doing. Why is a composer choosing a certain history in a certain moment? Is it always a coincidence? I think it's never a coincidence. It has to do with his worries, with his guilt, with his fantasies, with his unconscious, whatever. I'm positive sure about it. So I'm positive sure this affair between Teresa Stoltz and him in the triangle or not with his wife, Giuseppina Streponi, played an important role in this situation. So why did I say the day Verdi almost said goodbye? Because after doing AIDA, after the premiere of AIDA, Verdi said, guys, bye, see you later, done. As we say in Spanish, he put down the curtain of the store. In Spanish, we say that. He closed the store and he said, you know, I'm going to do all these things he, he had to do. And he kept his word in operatic terms for almost 17 years. For 17 years, Verdi was silent. He wrote the incredible Requiem, to the memory of Alessandro Manzoni, the writer I told you about, but he didn't write a single opera. And there were hundreds of tons of proposals. There was a lot of money offered him by many people. And he said, no, 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 done, I'm done. And to end this story, which ends in this, with this idea, Verdi came back, the most spectacular comeback in opera's history. When he was 74, 74, a comeback at 74, do you know who wrote the libretto for him? His enemy, Arrigo Boito, the young guy who was from the Scapigliatura. Who made that possible? Their editor, Giulio Ricordi, genius. He knew, I know how I can persuade Ver Verdi. First of all, Shakespeare. Otello. Verdi was in love. Shakespeare was Verdi's religion. Shakespeare was Verdi's God. He had Verdi's place in his, next to his bed all his life. He read daily Shakespeare. So first of all, Shakespeare. Second, putting together to work these supposed enemies who became Verdi became a father to Boito. Boito became a son to Verdi. It's moving because they adored each other so much that you know who was next to Verdi's bed when Verdi passed away? Boito. Arrigo Boito was next to him. That's an incredible story. It's a beautiful, very beautiful story. So Verdi finally came back with Otello which became his most radical work, to me, his best work, a new Verdi, even more modern, even more radical, but still loving his audience, 
and still being loved by his audience. And even a couple of years later, again, Boito, again, his editor Ricordi, again, Shakespeare, he wrote his last opera, Falstaff. And this incredible man who suffered, who had such an incredible and struggling life in so many parts of it, and his days at almost 80 years old, writing a comic opera. And his last words in opera were, Tutto nel mondo è burla. Everything in life is a joke. Let's not take life so seriously. Muchas gracias a ustedes. See Aida at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from May 21st through June 12th, 2022. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.